Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Eloquentia perfecta ex machina. Welcome to Eloquentia perfecta ex machina, a podcast series dedicated to the teaching of rhetoric and composition with and through a variety of media and focused on the writing program at St. Louis University. On this podcast, we interview instructors about how and why they use multimodal approaches, and we have instructors interview other instructors about the nuts and bolts of particular tools and assignments. Here we have Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina. Today's episode is diversifying the curriculum and decentering the canon. And today's guests, I have Lexi and Sal. Um, Sal, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm a first year PhD student here at SLU. My interests are pertaining to Caribbean diasporic horror literature and how it expands into Latinx diaspora and indigenous studies with horror. Thank you. Welcome, Sal. And we also have with us Lexi. Hi. I am a second year PhD student at SLU. I also got my master's here, so I feel like I've been here for quite a while now. Fourth year. Even though I've been here for four years studying, I still feel like generally my interests are all over the board. My my guiding interest, I guess, is just horror, specifically the way women are represented in horror. And also I've gotten really interested in like meat eating and ecofeminism and how these different things are presented in horror. So I'm right now I'm sticking with 19th century to 21st century American lit, which is still pretty broad, but, you know, it, whatever works. Yeah, whatever works. And I realized I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Katie Gutierrez-Glick. I'm a fourth-year PhD student, and I'm also um, a graduate assistant here in St. Louis University's Compass Lab. All right. So I wanted to start by one of the main themes that we talked about when we were formatting this episode's kind of themes and things like that is to talk about highlighting marginalized voices. And... I'm curious what this means and what this looks like for both of you within our classes. And basically, I wanted to ask how you all put this into practice or would like to put this into practice in the future. Yeah, I could start. It's something that has definitely been a work in progress for how I perceive like the classroom and everything. But after reading... For my MA thesis, a lot of bell hooks and her response to stuff like Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, looking at ways in which oppos- uh, what, are, what bell hooks calls oppositional worldviews may be more emergent and discussions of the classroom might be more conducive to, and challenging for students to discuss and produce actually very interesting work in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think... Bell Hooks is obviously a popular theorist that we can bring into the classroom. What about you? So I I have some notes here, and I was thinking through 1900, because I've taught that several times, but it's been a while now, and I'm teaching the 2000-level literature class, so I was thinking about the different ways that I do that. And when I do rhetoric, I've, I've only taught gender identity and rhetoric, actually. And one of the things that I really try to do is make it like not a white feminist class, because I think it's really easy to fall into that. And also it can be really touchy because, you know, generally my classes have been made out of made up of white students. Sometimes there are like a majority, majority of women, which is an interesting dynamic. But then also there's sometimes a good handful of 
young men and, you know, trying to approach these topics well being like not wanting to upset them, but also yeah. very much wanting them to realize like the, there are issues within white feminism. There's issues within whiteness. There's issues with, you know, transphobia, homophobia and trying to get all these things across in a classroom can be really touchy, um, mm-hmm. especially when they're just because a lot of times it's freshmen who are in, the, in 1900 trying to get them introduced to this without knowing their backgrounds and everything. So it's interesting. I generally start like really basic I don't want to like go into too depth, too much in depth into this, but I like start really basic and you talk about like the waves of feminism and stuff uh-huh. like that. Especially when we look at like the cross-listed courses that we can teach here at SLU within the Women and Gender Studies Department, I noticed that there's this really wide range of knowledge that students have and train within that classroom. Mm-hmm. So some students take a gender and identity themed classroom because it's something they're really interested in. It like pertains to their personal life or like their own background and that they're either minoring or majoring in it or thinking about mining, mm-hmm. minoring or majoring in women and gender studies. And then you um, have the students who perhaps signed up for that class uh, because the time worked for their schedule. So it's really interesting to, I think, within these women and gender studies cross-listed classes and like gender and identity themed classes to have such a broad range of students that you have to simultaneously teach to. And I think it makes for a really unique classroom dynamic in a way that perhaps themed class don't quite experience it as much. So at least that's been my own personal experience uh, teaching both 1900 and 2000 level like gender and identity themed classrooms. Uh, classes. But yeah, so I wanted to kind of draw our attention to the second part of the question, which is how you all kind of put put into practice your highlighting of marginalized voices. So for example, like, does that look like an assignment that you all assign within your 1900 or 2000 level classes? Or is it more of like the framework in which you teach your class? Um, so for me, it's definitely something that is built into my, it's built into the framework. It's kind of twofold where I gather, listen to the the various practices that a lot of, uh, pedagogical scholars of color would espouse Mm -hmm. as frameworks and how they reframe it as ways, like right now I'm pulling up something by, uh, Asao Anawe who talks about anti-racist writing assessment ecologies. And he just says that this is just good pedagogy. It's not about just saying I'm decentering whiteness or et cetera. This is about how do you actually teach a way that is equitable to everyone in the classroom, mm-hmm. regardless even if those people are in the classroom. Yeah. You know, that's something that we also have to keep in mind when teaching at a PWI. Mm-hmm is that even though the demographic may, that we're trying to be equitable to may not be represented in the classroom, we still have to espouse those practices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's something, Lexi, that you alluded to when you were teaching earlier is like the demographics of the classroom that we are teaching in, which right. are predominantly white, white students here at mm-hmm. St. Louis University. 
Yeah, and I think I think I this goes along with what you were saying, Sal. Something that I do, I was thinking about how I grade in my classes because to me, it's just it doesn't make sense to give someone a horrible grade because they just don't understand how to write necessarily or they don't write in what's expected and in like an academic form. So that's something I really think about. And to me, it's more about, you know, the ideas that students can explore and how their writing might progress throughout the semester based on how well I'm helping them, not necessarily just all in them. Because, I mean, people come from so many different backgrounds, even if they are, like we were saying, predominantly white students, you don't know, you know, necessarily what education they had access to before. I mean, we do have, you know, students from who are foreign, so they don't necessarily have the same kind of grasp of, of the language as we do, which is something that I really think about in my classroom and how, like I said, how I approach grading. And for instance, I don't, I don't know, it might be an unpopular opinion, but like in my lit class, I don't give a midterm exam. I ask my students to kind of try to connect the themes that we'd studied so far, but I'm like, I'm not going to make you sit down. I'm doing the film class right now. I'm not going to make you sit down and memorize. To me, memorization, especially in a literature course, doesn't really matter unless, I don't know, I don't even know if it technically matters if you're an English person. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, like, how often do I sit down and I'm like, I'm going to define or I don't know, I'm going to define, I was going to say alliteration, but I guess that's something that you might actually think about with your poetry or something, but you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, sure. To me, I don't know, I think I think that's related to what you're saying. Evaluating students, I think, is an interesting thing. And even thinking that we have to evaluate students and what that, like the connotations of, are that, yeah. of that are. I can't talk, but yeah. Yeah, totally. I know for me personally, issuing grades and like grading um, student papers is actually my least favorite part of teaching, mm -hmm. like by right. far. I think it just brings into, it reminds us of like the hierarchy in the classroom, which is always there, obviously. And yeah, I think, uh, especially here at SLU, with having the possibility of having like students in like the Pathways program and things like that, it just doesn't make sense to ap apply uh, your assessments across the board without mm -hmm. taking into account like the students' background and things like that, which I would say is uh, definitely a more feminist practice than not. But yeah, as far as assignments that you all uh, issue in 1900 or 2000 or assignments that you all want to use in the future that highlight marginalized voices or, you know, diversify and decenter the canon, do you all have any examples of what that might look like in your classes? I don't know if I would call it a assignment. It's something I do in the beginning of the semester mm -hmm. where I would send out a survey because like what Lexi was saying, I want to see where my students are at, but not mm -hmm. by doing any form of assessment, but rather I use the, the term like what definitions emerge from the course itself. Mm -hmm. So how would you define success in this classroom for you? And they kind of describe what they would like to get out of it. So I kind of just break that hierarchy because I want to see how I could work to achieve that for mm -hmm. them as well yeah. instead of just them working to achieve it. And so it becomes more collaborative. You know, I like to express the fact that, that the, the whole course is about collaboration. I'm doing all my assignments as group work. Oh, and we're, yes. And we're focusing on like, okay, how do we all work together to achieve a goal? So... Everything is mostly effort-based. Everything is mostly based on 
what their personal goals were and when we meet one on one or in groups because I go I give my comments by meeting with them uh-huh. and then we discuss like okay do you feel like you were successful in doing x y and z and can you explain why yes yes and if a student could clearly articulate in whichever way they can what they've done then it was a success i really like that so do you meet with each of the students in your class to articulate that feedback yes for them wow that's something that I'd really like to ethically steal from you. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah I, I agree. I agree. I really like that idea. And I was going to say, I mean, it's not something that I designed, but I think 1900 with our disologoi, as frustrating as it can be when we are writing them ourselves, when we are, you know, taking the teaching writing course and right. then we have to, like, guide students through it. I think that that really is a good example of, I don't know if it's, like, highlighting necessarily marginalized voices, but it's like decentering what we expect from academia, you know, in the sense that you don't really necessarily make a strong argument for anything. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're just thinking through an issue. And the, the, the whole thing is about like the process of doing it instead of the final product, which I think is really cool. Something that comes up a lot for me, though, that is kind of a problem or like it's hard for me to think through and figure out how to, you know, solve the issue for the student is. So, for instance, I said I, I teach gender and identity or gender identity and rhetoric. So, you know, students will be like, well, I want to talk about the bathroom bill or something mm-hmm. like that. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, well, how can we handle that? Because I'm obviously, I mean, you, you can't write a paper where you're going to be like, well, transgender people should be able to use the restroom that they, you know, the gender that they identify with and that they shouldn't. Like, you can't do that. So that's something that's been interesting. And actually, I think it's been kind of maybe good. I don't, to me, it's just so hard even still to wrap my head completely around the DL. So I don't know if we're necessarily accomplishing the goal, but something that we do when I have students who are interested in something like that is I'll say, well, okay, we'll sit down and find, you know, different ways to fix the issue or like different bills that different states might have passed or like ways different school, like depending on what level they're interested, uh-huh. might have dealt with this issue. Um, you know, just to try to think about like, well, what's the best method to make something equal or equitable and then and then a lot of times actually there are multimodal projects like I had one student who made her own model of what a gender inclusive bathroom could look like which was really cool yeah that's fun yeah and I had one student who wrote about period poverty and Mm -hmm. ended up with like a proposal she could take to like city council or something so that's cool and I think that it's it's a cool way to you know I mean I guess that is not just decentering academia kind of but it is like the marginalized voices of youth, because like period poverty obviously is going to be something that affects a lot of like people who are houseless and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's great. I, I really like kind of like the different ways or the different examples that you you both included. I, I feel like the only one that I could maybe tack on there is at the beginning of the semester, I pass out um, index cards to each of my students mm-hmm. and I have them just write, uh, kind of like free write whatever they'd like me to know about either like their learning styles Mm -hmm. or like their situations outside of the classroom. You know, like it's helpful for me to know that they're, you know, maybe like working a full-time job outside of the classroom or they like have um, childcare duties, Mm -hmm. you know, outside of their time on campus. And I also ask them to go ahead and list anything that they'd like me to know about this as it pertains to them being a student in this class in general. So like, I think it's, that's really helpful in 1900 and 2000 level 
courses that students are, you know, maybe very anxious about taking the mm -hmm. 1900 level class or they, they think they've been told that they're bad writers and they are really like dreading doing something like the Disologoi or they have had bad experiences with group work in the past and that's why they are having like a negative reaction to it or something like that. I've just found that that helps me understand their background a little bit more and if you know, we run into some sort of situation. I have a little bit more just like context for the student throughout like the entire like trajectory of the course. Yeah. So I think that if you don't mind me saying something, yeah. I think that makes a, like a lot of sense. And I don't necessarily have them do that, but I try to make it very clear. Like one of the things I was also thinking about was like the word authority and like who has the authority in the classroom because mm -hmm. I don't really like that idea either. And I'm like, so I don't know, I don't want to say I'm the authority in the classroom, am I the leader in the classroom, but still I prefer my students to like, if, I like to do discussion and I rather them lead and I'll just guide like if we need it or something like that. But also something like last semester, because last semester was just rough with all the things that happened on campus. And I know like my students, they would say their other professors didn't even acknowledge that anything was going on. So something that I don't know, I think was really helpful. I just, I was like, well, we're not going to talk about literature today. We're going to talk about what's happening, how you guys are feeling. And I don't know, last semester was just like my best semester ever teaching. I felt like we really had like a community, like you were saying, you mm -hmm. and your students, like, you know, what's going on in their lives. And I did too, but it was really cool because there are a lot of students in that class who didn't know each other before then, but like the way that we talked in class and I, you know, some days I just be like, let's not talk about this. Let's talk about what's going on with you. What are you happy about? What are you sad about? Like you need to talk about anything. And there, it was just a really cool experience where they were able to build community like among themselves and also like with, with me, which was really cool. And that's something that I'm like, I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but it was really, really cool. And that's definitely like the goal now for all of my classes. And it's been interesting because this semester it's just, it's just not quite the same. And weirdly, I think the classroom itself plays a large part into that. But it, yeah. it's just interesting, like dealing with different, you know, spatial things or things that students are going through or like what's going on in campus and like all the settings and trying to keep those whoops, keep those in mind, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, I definitely feel like we're juggling all those things. I I also have found that my classroom, at least the classroom I'm teaching right now, it's like a stadium style mm -hmm seating classroom and I, I really wish it wasn't <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. I like uh, doing like you know like the Socratic circle and mm -hmm. things like that and I find that some students just don't ever talk to other students in the classroom based on like where they they are seated within mm -hmm. the classroom. So like right now in my class they have like those little pods that are like you know like four mm -hmm. tables for each and you could see who's already either forming like a group, maybe friends that came into the class together because I teach the technology and media section. So it's a lot of STEM students. So they all know each other. And what I did this semester and I'm going to keep doing is since it's all group work, their first short writing assignment was elevator pitches for what the topics should be in the class mm. for the projects. And then they voted. And then there's there was five. Yeah, there was five topics four for each and it comes out to 20 and then they noticed that the people that were signing up they didn't know because it was all based on interest yeah yeah or they vaguely knew from other classes but they weren't like buddy buddy with when they first uh -huh. came in 
So it forced them to move around. Yeah. Which was very interesting. And from the midterm surveys that I sent out, they actually mention a lot that uh, they're happy that they're getting to know other people in the class. And then the peer review, each person in their groups has to read a different group's assignment. I like that. So now it's very much so social, even though it feels separate Mm -hmm. because everything's like on Google Docs and they're just in the classroom. You see people moving around, talking um, and coordinating what they're doing with each other. Yeah, that feels good to like witness as well. I know that generally when I've done peer review, it feels like, you know, friend buddies just go and peer review like their buddies paper. So Mm -hmm. I usually like to do some sort of like pairing up myself where I pair the students just to like encourage the mixing (laughs) in the classroom. Yeah. I, I think we've talked a little bit about some of the authors that you all implement or like theorists, but I just wanted to have the space to where you all could mention like specific, either specific authors or theorists that you found like helpful as it relates to these topics. So I was mostly thinking of like the authors that I teach in my class. Uh, and when I when it comes to 1900, like I mentioned, I try to deal a lot with intersectionality and things like that. So obviously we talk about Crenshaw because that's very important to everything. Something too that we me too comes up all the time. So I try to always point out that it started with Tarana Burke, uh-huh. um, who was a black woman, uh, and it's not just like a white movement or it didn't start with white women. White actresses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We do a lot with Gloria Anzaldúa, actually, and I know I'm not putting the uh, like pronunciation exactly right. I can't do it, but I really, really enjoy her work, and mm-hmm. it's fun to talk about that. And it's really interesting to think about in uh, context with her, like what language does for your identity, and you know, because she even talks about having not just being in the United States and like speaking Spanish, but like also in like a Spanish-speaking community, like. Is Spanglish acceptable? Is it not like the different ways mm-hmm. it's, if, you know, affects her? And I think it's really important for students to realize that. And I don't think it necessarily has to do just with like speaking Spanish versus, versus English. But like if you want to think about like particularly like, English vernacular that we're used to, like kind of what we were talking about with like student writing, like the different kinds of ways that students can express themselves too. I don't know. I There's this particular author, his name's Sam Killerman, and he has a book called Guide to Gender, the Social Justice Advocates Handbook. And it's been helpful for me because we were discussing, you know, when you teach gender identity and rhetoric, you don't know what students already know. And it's very, very, very like simple. But I usually just start there and then work from there. But like he, he talks about, you know, everything from like feminism to toxic masculinity to it's endless, really, what he covers. Like but sexuality. Yeah, yeah, sexuality. He talks gender expression. Yeah, he has like a gender bred person instead yeah, of I really yeah. like that. Yeah. I actually just talked very briefly about it with my students in my lit class because we're working with a film called Sleepaway Camp. It's a slasher from nineteen eighty-three. Uh depending on how you look at it, it's very troubling with mm-hmm. the way that it represents like transgender people and I don't know. It, it was interesting to think about that. And like, I don't want to spoil it for everybody. And I'd have to go on a whole spiel of what exactly the film was. And like, if, for instance, we were talking about like in the time period that it was made, it would have been like horrible and just exploitative. But there are a lot of people that I have read, you know, and it's not like academic writing or anything talking about how actually it was helpful to them as transgender people to see this representation. But anyway, I mean, that's that's an example of something that we've been working with, too. 
I was going to mention Brittany Cooper. She has a book called Eloquent Rage. She's a professor of women and gender studies at Rutgers, I think. She was really, I was nervous about teaching her just because, again, we have a very large like white population and I didn't know how it was going to go over in the classroom. And I taught particularly stuff about police violence and from Brittany Cooper and then also white girl tears, which was really interesting. I don't really know how my students felt about it. They didn't really <laughs> interact with that one that much, but I don't know. That was fun. And, you know, I'm not going to go over all of this, but uh, last semester when I taught my lit class, I think the only like really thing that you might expect to find in the canon that I taught was The Handmaid's Tale. And as I, as I was reading it, I ended up wondering why I ever really liked the story because there are a lot... <laughs> <laughs> there's it, so it much feels too real right now well right? that too but there's so much like questionable stuff about the way like what is it called i think it's called the underground female road and it's mostly about white women trying in like the equation of what's happening which is horrible in the novel but like there's no comparing that to slavery and the underground railroad yeah. and I, there are a lot of things that i had never noticed so it was actually good to have those conversations with my students like oh i thought this was a really progressive book and it's not yeah yeah but yeah that's so interesting I've also had that experience where I've I've gone back and taught a, a book that I read previously. And when I reread it, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I'll do that one again. What about you, Sal? So for me, I usually, when I'm teaching, like when I, if I were to ever teach 1900 again, and I'm considering actually giving it to my class currently, is a lot of Toni Morrison's like essays. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, I think it's called Writing in the Dark. I usually teach it, I in my MA, I used to teach it for my literature course. I'm noticing that I could just pull a lot of like ret uh, ret comp stuff from it to discuss with my 1900 class, where we just talk about, since the course theme this semester is on collaboration and compromise, we're yes. reading Rachel's book. Yes. So how, so having that as sort of not a center, but rather a baseline that we see one definition of compromise, co communication, and collaboration. Mm -hmm. How does we then see ideas of what do we compromise from other positionalities? Yeah, I really like... Because in order to, from what I'm sort of discussing in class, in order to sort of center or highlight marginalized voices, we have to sort of center everything. Uh-huh. Because a, a big part of the movement, and you hear this quote a lot, is, you know, black liberation is the liberation of everyone. Yes, yes. So we have to start at that base, and then it, everything is already, it becomes liberated. Mm -hmm. So that's how I like to discuss everything in conversation, where these are people that would be in conversation, even if they disagree. Mm -hmm. How do these ideas conflict? How do we then, what emerges from that conflict? It becomes very dialectical even though i don't use that word in class because then my students would run oh yeah but it it's something that is important mm -hmm. because it, it starts off i try to do the the method of like slowly turning up the temperature so they yeah. don't notice that the temperature is being turned up so i'll progressively work all my way up to white women tears uh -huh. so when they're like oh this i'm not i don't feel as uncomfortable as I thought because we kind of did all this other stuff and it yeah. makes more sense. 
laid the groundwork. Yeah. Yeah. So I do very, I, I try to be very subtle with it. And then also with the practices, like, oh, what does, you know, how, how what are you compromising by agreeing with this? Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I really like kind of the idea of turning up the, the temperature slowly. Yeah. I'm not really sure how else to say that on the class and then kind of like looking at where the class uh, ends up basically on everyone's critiques or like base of knowledge. I'm teaching a uh, 2000 level gender identity and literature class right now. And I teach that as like a post-colonial literature class. For me, I think it's really interesting to see, to go from students learning about like what the word post-colonial even means or like what colonial occupation meant to kind of having these very uh, in-depth like critiques of the notion of coloniality or like what it looks like um, or like what the ramifications are like on a culture or a country, for example. I find that to be very fun (laughs) throughout the entire course. Oh, great. So the last topic I wanted to talk about is uh, just the question of how can we kind of do all these things that we're talking about as far as like diversifying the curriculum and the classroom and decentering the canon without maybe explicitly stating it to our students. So like, are there ways that you all have been able to accomplish these goals without directly stating to your students that this is what we're doing today? example i'm currently trying to do that uh-huh. um in the class that i'm teaching next semester which is the film and culture uh 2000 level course where i'm just assigning a, a, a vast array of different cultures so for the films i'm going to be assigning stuff like parasite uh pan's labyrinth and a few other foreign films and for the books um it's Anel Hopkinson's Skin Folk, Mexican Gothic. So it's a lot of, so it's a horror based class, but it is a, and I, how I framed it is just looking at what are these themes of domesticity, folklore, psych, psychology, and the supernatural. Uh-huh. So it's not, I'm not making a statement like, oh, this is a, you know, diverse course. I'm just showing the, a, a, a diverse array. Yeah, yeah. It because just it's is. called film and culture. So. Uh-huh. You know, there's more than one culture. So just by doing that, it's decentering what we consider culture. Yeah. And that's obviously such like a broad category, like culture. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> that's so, well, I take that class. I have to say both of you all are interested in horror. And I don't think I watched a scary movie <laughs> since like middle school because I just can't handle it. So you're making me rethink, um, <laughs> you know, rethink that. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Lex? I don't know. I think I, I would say probably I have the same approach as you, Sal. I mean, like I talked about different things that I tried to tackle in 1900, and it, it's not that I necessarily go into it saying, uh, I don't know, that we need to like decenter things or anything like that. Because I think like explicitly saying that too would actually make the students like a lot more hesitant to mm-hmm. be open-minded. I don't know. So I guess like you said, I just try to assign in a variety of voices and that was a lot easier with 1900 and last semester with my gender identity and lit class actually i taught a book by han kang called the vegetarian 
and it takes place in South Korea. And it's interesting, you know, because students could see how it related to things that people, you know, in America are experiencing, but also like the particular cultural issues concerning a lot of like patriarchal kinds of things in that book are really interesting. And it's really a book about nonviolence, even though a lot of, I mean, you can read it obviously, and it's about vegetarianism. Uh Um, But it was really interesting doing that. And then I did a book called Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Basterica. And I can never remember. I think she's from Brazil. She's um, Argentinian. Okay. Yeah. Great. She's from Argentina. (laughs) Uh, I can never remember. I don't know why. But, you know, that book also deals with similar themes, but it's interesting getting it from a different perspective. I don't know. So I don't know. Like I said, that class was a little bit easier for me to do that because I also did a book or it's a comic book actually called Infidel. And I cannot remember what the author's name was. It's something pitch it shout, I think. But it's basically like an apartment building that's haunted by xenophobia. It's really good. Yeah. And I wanted to watch Get Out. We didn't get to it because I had to cut some of the stuff out. But stuff like that was somewhat easy to do. But then I thought that my themes, I guess, or questions to guide the class were too broad. So Mm -hmm. this semester I was like, okay, I'm going to do all slashers. Yeah. Which has been good, but it's definitely harder to find diverse films like in turn not necessarily always like the actors and actresses although that does come in but like the creators because most of them you know I was like well I want to trace this as much as I can and I started I mean this isn't necessarily the beginning but I started with like proto slashers like Psycho and Peeping Tom and stuff like that actually Peeping Tom's really interesting with like its portrayal of sex work so I wasn't expecting that but you know a lot of these films uh, were written and directed by white straight cis men you know Mm -hmm. Which can be problematic. Uh, for instance, I don't know, when I was doing Psycho, I was like, oh, God, I forgot Hitchcock was actually, like, horrible. So, I mean, I'm, so I mean, like, one of the things that I've been trying to do at least is, like, say this, like, this is where it comes from. This is who this creator was. And it's important to know this about him and not just be like, he's a god of cinema or whatever. But I was going to say, I, I did include a few films that were you know like written and directed by women because I tried to it was more difficult than I thought it would be but we did a movie called um Slumber Party Massacre which there's so much I've never seen that much nudity in a movie before and it comes from women which is interesting but it was meant to be a satire there's this whole story Mm, okay but it's not sexualized really which was really interesting we've done Jennifer's Body in that class which is really great (laughs) I just love that movie so much what did we just do Oh, we just did Freaky, which came out in 2020 with Vince Vaughn and Catherine Newton. And it was written and directed by white men, but they were both openly gay, which is a little bit different. So there's some interesting representation stuff, I think, going on in that film, too. Um, I actually paired it with Sleepaway Camp when we talked about transgender uh-huh. um, and like non-binary identities in those films. So I don't know. Even if even if it's hard to find something like the sources, I can still like the way I try to frame like our opening conversation on the film before we just turn to like discussion is like, these are some of the issues that I saw. What do you guys think? You know, like what other issues could you see? And just try to get them. My biggest thing in that class and like the other lit class, I mean, really any class is just to get students to think critically about what they're consuming, whether it's for class or it's just like, oh, I'm going to watch this TV show. And to also like make sure they know I'm not like, you shouldn't watch that because they use a slur or something like that because things are going to do that but like to be like you be aware of where things are coming from why it's happening and that it's still okay to enjoy them Mm -hmm. sometimes yeah no I think that's a really good point I taught the film class last semester and I I did it 
as a queer film class, and I ran into similar issues that you were talking about, where just trying like that the deeper deeper level like critical thinking mm-hmm. can sometimes be difficult when the students aren't comfortable with the material or aren't used to critically thinking about that mm-hmm. type of material. But I think it's it's still an important task to try and accomplish. So yeah. Well, as we're winding down, was there anything else that either of you wanted to say on like any of the topics that we've talked about today? I think the the thing that I've been kind of thinking about and this is even outside of the the, the two thousand level course of the but in nineteen hundred as well, just because I was thinking about horror and looking at um you know diverse creators when discussing that is how do you not just exploit trauma yeah absolutely. right and that kind of that, that was something that when I was gathering uh texts and stuff for that course I had to think about well do I want to show get out or do I want to show us because is there something in showing something something with black trauma and something when it's just horror that centers a black family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and black trauma emerges from it but isn't the thing that's being discussed yeah and that's something i realize i talk a lot with my students about is well even though this thing is always constantly emergent in whatever we're reading or when we're looking at things we just read glenn Ber- uh, john berger's ways of seeing and mm-hmm. the whole idea of like sex cells so like you know patriarchal ideas of bodies will always show up yeah however when we're looking at things do we or when we're choosing our favorite things does it always have to be like this is the i feel like i'm veering off but is this do we have to discuss the most exploitative things all the time mm-hmm. why because that's not where all the critical thinking also lies we have to also look at the things where it's subtle, but yet we see this thing still emerge. Yeah, absolutely. Also to show a wide array of representation mm-hmm. and ideas. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point, like trying to direct the focus away from like the most traumatic scenes or the most traumatic like focal point in like mm-hmm. these, you mm-hmm. know, films or narratives. Absolutely. Or that uh, there's more diversity or I guess... What am I trying to say here? There is more in these uh, marginalized voices than just like their just trauma. Just the trauma, right? Yeah, or like depictions of trauma. So, great. Well, on that note, thank you guys for stepping into the podcast today. Yeah, thanks yeah. for having us. Yeah, yeah thanks for having totally. us. This was fun. <laughs> Let's do it again sometime. like to get involved in this podcast series to share an assignment or tool or to pitch an interview please contact me at sheila.corsi at slu.edu eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina eloquentia perfecta ex machina